continue our series in the first epistle of Peter. This morning it's chapter 4, our reading is chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, one verse, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we have one verse of Scripture before us this morning, but nonetheless, lots and lots of truth that we desperately need, and we express our utter and complete dependence upon your Spirit to make clear to us, to minister to us, to comfort us with this truth. So Jesus, that you might be glorified, send your Spirit, open eyes, our ears, Soften our hearts to receive what you have, that you'd be glorified. In your name we pray with confidence. Amen. One of the things athletes like least about their sport is conditioning. Conditioning is this. After you've practiced your plays and worked on your skills, the coach says, now it's time to run. And you run, and you run, and you run some more. Sooner or later, every coach gets asked this by his players. Coach, why do we have to run so much? And the answer usually goes like this. Well, there's going to come a time in the fourth quarter near the end of the game. And both teams will have gone all out. And it is the team that perseveres to the end that is likely to win. It's one thing to be outsmarted. It's one thing to be out-talented. But there's no excuse for being out-conditioned. So keep running. I think you athletes can identify with what I'm describing. Peter is telling his readers that the Christian life is lived in the fourth quarter of the game. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And unlike sports venues today, where you can see the game clock, athletes know how much time is left on the clock. We who follow Jesus do not have a clock ticking to tell us when earth history ends. We simply know that the time is short and we need to finish strong. So what are you doing regularly to ensure a strong finish to your life? How do you know you won't be overtaken by the opponents of persecution, sickness, sorrow, Calamity, loss, self-indulgence, a lack of focus, doubt, even pleasure. Where is your confidence that when the game clock expires, you will savor the spoils of victory forever? I ask because I believe that is the question behind this text. And perhaps, like me, you have known people 
that started the Christian life strong and seemed to peter out towards the end. And you wondered, will I finish strong? Why haven't they finished the race well? So let's look this week at what it means the end of all things is at hand. And then next week, I've actually divided this verse into two separate sermons. I dug in, I got in, I realized, oh, there's two sermons here. So this week, we're going to look at what does it mean, the end of all things is at hand. And then next week, we'll take the second half of the verse and look at what it implies. So the meaning of this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Is Peter a crazy man with, uh, consumed with end time prophecies? No. I want you to see that as a statement about worldviews. The end of all things that is at hand is essentially a worldview statement. What's a worldview? We all have one. Worldviews answer the question, where did I come from? How did I get here? Why are we here? What's really important? How should I treat others? What happens when you die? How do you determine right from wrong? What's, what's, the, what's the meaning of, of life? What's the meaning of, of human purpose? That's what a worldview answers. You see the significance of that. Everything that you end up doing or not doing flows from your ideas ultimately about what is true. So the practical ways that we live our lives are based on what we believe. They're based on our worldviews. You could tease out numerous examples. Peter, in this sentence, is using the word therefore, the end of all, is all things is at, is at hand, therefore, he's creating a contrast to a way of living he described in the first six verses of chapter four that also constitute a worldview. It looks like a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Summed up in verse three this way, the people that these Christians used to go with that are now scorning them for not doing the same things, here's how they lived. They lived in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. No, it looks like their worldview was simply this. You only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto that you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Only you can determine what happiness is for you. No one else can do that. So decide for yourself the best path to take and live to please yourself. That looks like the heart of the worldview against which Peter is saying, just a second. That's why his therefore is there. Now, you realize that worldview would be absolutely true if all there is in the world is molecules in motion. If the atheist worldview is in fact true, you might as well self-indulge because when you die, you simply expire. Naturalistic evolution, the atheistic worldview says, in the beginning, there was matter. In the end, there's matter. In between, all there is is matter. World history is the impersonal, cyclical motion of molecules moving and bumping into each other. History goes on and on until the sun burns out or we happen to blow each other up. Peter, however, does not share that worldview. When he puts the word therefore in this sentence, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, he is saying there is a God, 
We live in a moral universe. There are objective moral standards of behavior that come from that God, and there will be a day of reckoning before that God. Verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So therefore, right behavior is more than a good idea. It's more than practically that helps us all get along. No, right behavior, living a certain way, is important because everything belongs to God. Not least you, the one he's created. And therefore, true humanity reflects the character of God, and God will inspect everything he makes. So that's some introductory thoughts to this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. And I want to ask four questions of that phrase. That's what we'll do for the rest of the message this morning. Four questions. First of all, the end of all things is at hand refers to what? This word end in the original language, the Greek, the Greek word telos, telos, which means goal or purpose. So Peter is saying that the goal of earth history is at hand. In the Bible, history is linear. It has a definite beginning. It has a definite end. God starts history. God directs history. God will conclude history. History is not in the hands of humanity. God the Lord is Lord of the nations. History is his story. And the all things Peter refers to is simply what God is doing on the earth. It's the outworking of God's own glorious, sovereign plan for the earth. He's in control of it. He rules it. And ultimately, the Bible teaches us that, that the meta-narrative, the overarching story of earth history, is that God is rescuing from Adam's ruined humanity of people, men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue to give to his son, Jesus. God wants his son to enjoy forever a family of people from all over the earth. That's what is at hand. Those are the all things that Peter is referring to. And you may have noticed in case you were asleep during 2020, earth history lived under the curse is a mess. It's a royal mess. There's conflict, wars, pollution, sickness, death, natural disasters, hunger, poverty. And this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the world God created. It is the world God is redeeming and sovereign over. And we all know life shouldn't be this way. You don't have to believe in God to be outraged at injustice, crime, corruption. Most sane people in humanity long for something better. But you do need a biblical worldview to justify your outrage. If your worldview is atheistic and all you believe in is matter, and world history is molecules bumping up 
evolve each other through an endless purposeless period of time, then your outrage is simply chemical reactions in your brain. Chemicals don't produce morals, let alone moral outrage. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and this is not the way it will always be. Paradise is coming down to the earth again because God wants to be with his people. This is the promise, this is the vision, this is the expectation at the end of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We've returned to creation without sin. God with Adam and Eve in paradise. Here it comes again. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. It is on the strength of that fact, that reality, that confident expectation that followers of Jesus endure hardship. They endure persecution. They endure suffering because we know Jesus is going to make it better one day. Peter's audience themselves are having a very hard life. They're being persecuted. They want this end to come. So actually, it's very interesting that in view of life ending with paradise restored, that Christianity and Christian living seeks to hold in tension two things that almost look very different from each other. On the one hand, serious followers of Jesus throughout history have sought diligently and carefully to alleviate human suffering. They've sought to feed the poor, dig wells for the thirsty, build hospitals for the sick, start, school for people, start schools for people to be educated. Christians throughout history, even though the end is coming, have sought to alleviate human suffering, to make life more tolerable in this time period, during Earth history. And on the other hand, this might feel a little bit of attention, on the other hand, here's what's also true. The easier you seek to make life for yourself, for your own comfort, the less concerned you will be for the end of all things. In other words, personal peace and prosperity, not bad things in and of themselves, are actually very precarious. They're very dangerous. They're like a chainsaw used carefully can accomplish a lot of good, but carelessly can really hurt you. Personal peace and prosperity can cause you to not desire the end of all things. So there's a warning there. Tension. Christians seek to alleviate human suffering while being careful themselves not to be given to a temptation to simply pursuing personal peace and prosperity. Second question I want to ask. How does Peter know the end is near? Who told him 
Is this some sort of prophetic thing? How does he know the end of all things is near, uh, soon to happen, close by? Here's the answer. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus represent the complex events that are climatic, pivotal, key in all of human history. Everything turns on the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus on earth was far more than a good person setting an example for people to live. No, the ministry of Jesus on earth was the breaking in of the eternal into the finite, the indestructible into the perishable. Jesus coming for a restoration of normality. Life on earth was not the way it's supposed to be. He came to inaugurate the beginning of the end so that it is the way it's supposed to be. It's as if when Jesus came to earth, he put one hand around unfallen paradise, pristine life. He put one hand around it. He put another hand around the end of all things. When God comes to be with his people, heaven comes to earth. Everything will be renewed in perfection. It's like in this ministry, he was squeezing those two things together. Saying, I am reclaiming what belongs to me, the entire earth. Why is he doing this? Because he cares how ruined this world is. He weeps over what sin has done to people who are fundamentally built for, oh, see, your worldview will depend on how you finish that sentence. Human beings were fundamentally built to thrive on, how do you finish that sentence? The Bible tells us human beings were built to thrive on righteousness, conformity to the image of God. And from God's point of view, to any degree, what you do think and say is at variance with the image of God. You will never thrive the way God created you to thrive. So Jesus comes the imperishable into the perishable, the infinite into the finite, bringing us foretastes of the future. Think about the symbolic meaning behind his miracles. One day the lame will walk and run. One day the blind will see. The prisoners will be freed. The hungry will have enough food. Demons will no longer trouble human beings. There'll be no more sin. One day there'll be no more death. We'll have fellowship with God face to face. In uh, Luke 14, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast. And who are the people that are invited? Go out into the byways and bring them in. Drag them to the king's wedding feast. It is, we're told there, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. People who have nothing to offer God. People who are replete of their own resources. People who are absolutely broken. They're the ones invited to the banquet. They're the ones who experience forever the perfect restoration of what God made them to be. So 
you see, beloved, the revelation of Jesus Christ tells you what is wrong with you. The God-man who lived in absolute perfection to the law of God tells you, you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You're a sinner. The revelation of the perfect Jesus tells you you're a sinner in need of cleansing, in need of redemption, in need of Jesus' cross. And the Bible tells us the soul that sins will die. So you're in not only a need, you're not only a sinner in need of a savior, you're a body heading for the grave in need of resurrection. Both of these are met in the work of Jesus Christ. He came to do for sinners what they are absolutely in, able, unable to do for themselves. He paid the penalty for our sins in his body on the cross. And his father raised him from the dead on the third day. Peter captured this just a few verses before at the end of chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, his cross, made alive in the spirit, his resurrection. Now have you put your name into that verse? Can you say before God, Christ also suffered once for Mike's sins. Christ the righteous for Mike the unrighteous. That he might bring Mike to God. Jesus being put to death in the flesh for my sins. Raised in the spirit for my life. Have you put your name into that verse? This is the day to do that. Don't wait a second longer. Peter also alluded to this. He, he can never get away from the gospel. At the beginning of his epistle, 1 Peter 1.3, notice how our certain hope of being with Jesus forever is according to his great mercy, 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As sure as Jesus is in heaven, so is his reward for you with him, kept by him for you, he himself being our principal reward. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, that is the certainty that death will one day be completely swallowed up and banished. So it is through the resurrection that Jesus Christ becomes the champion the world seeks for in vain. It is through Jesus alone who bursts through the tomb. Jesus who, who ripped the grave claws, claws off the dying. Jesus who looks at this perverted moral order and says, I'm sending my spirit to change all of that. Jesus is the champion we all need, we all look for. And it tells you this. You are not made for things. You were made for a person. You're made for a person. You're made to know Christ, to relish him, to see him, to enjoy him, to speak with him, to listen to him, to have koinonia fellowship with him. We were made for a person, not things. And Jesus came the first time to defeat sin. He will come the second time to eradicate all sin and evil. And that is why the Christian hope for 2,000 years has been, no matter how much time is left on the clock, 
That Christian hope has been the resurrection of Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells the story of a communist lecturer summing up his speech this way, communist lecturer in the 20th century. Communist lecturer said this, therefore there is no God, Jesus Christ never existed, there's no such thing as a Holy Spirit, the church is an oppressive institution and is out of date, the future belongs to the state and the state is in the hands of the party. End of speech for the communist lecturer. He was about to sit down, writes N.T. Wright, when an old priest near the front stood up and said, may I say two words? They happened to be three in English, two in his native Russian. The lecturer disdainfully gave him permission. The old priest turned and looked over the crowd and shouted, Christ is risen! Back came the roar from the crowd. He is risen indeed! They've been saying it every Easter for a thousand years. Why stop them? Third question I want to ask of this phrase, the, all, the end of all things is at hand. Is it misleading to say is at hand? Meaning it's near, it's soon, it's close by. Actually, it's on the strength of uh, teaching like this and other teaching in the Gospels that many scholars critical of the inerrancy of the New Testament have concluded that the writers were wrong, they were deluded, they were teaching that Jesus was coming soon. They were obviously wrong because it's been 2,000 years since all these statements were made. Were the New Testament writers mistaken? No, they are simply saying that since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we're in the fourth quarter. We're not looking back, we're looking ahead. We are working and waiting for the Lord. The length of time appears irrational only to us because we are bound by space and time in a way that God is not. So I'll read again what Marty read earlier in the service from 2 Peter chapter 3. So it's almost like Peter reflects on the need to clarify this statement in his second epistle. The end of all things is at hand. He comes back to it in his second epistle, writing this in 3.3. Notice, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, quote, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, end quote. Peter's comment. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The flood. God destroyed the ancient world with a universal catastrophic flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up by fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so you're wondering, well, it's taken a long time to do that. When's that going to happen? Verse 8, don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He doesn't measure time the way we do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're a person, may not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you found reasons in your heart and your mind to distrust the promises of the Bible, one of which is the Bible makes these promises about the second coming of Jesus that obviously haven't come true. Why is God delaying? The answer is he's waiting for you to repent. He's waiting for you to come to know him. He's waiting for you to submit to Jesus, to bow the knee of your heart, to give yourself to Jesus. Christ will save you. Christ will save you now. It is the one reason we're given why Jesus hasn't come yesterday. So we don't need to know the exact when. The point from the biblical perspective is we need to be ready. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need to be sober. We looked at a passage teaching that from 1 Thessalonians uh, couple years ago when we studied that book. Here's the last question. We're reflecting on the meaning of the end of all things is at hand. What are the specific preoccupations to avoid when we seek to live that verse, the end of all things is at hand? Let me just briefly name three preoccupations to avoid. One preoccupation with when, and that is the trying to set a date. In 1988, I graduated from seminary. I remember showing up my first day at work at the church where I was going back to minister, uh, Trinity Presbyterian in Charlottesville, Virginia. My desk was blank. And I remember walking into my office, and there on, the only thing on my desk was this little blue booklet. I picked it up, I looked at it, and it said, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. I wonder if somebody was giving me a message. Your ministry's not going to last very long. It was 1988. Guess what? Every single one of the 88 reasons detailed in that booklet was wrong. And to my knowledge, the writer of that booklet has never publicly repented of such foolish date setting. Preoccupation with date setting. A bad use of time. Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Second preoccupation to avoid. Preoccupation with waiting. This is the attitude that Paul had to address among the Thessalonians. Check it out, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2. And that is, since Jesus could be coming tomorrow, I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to spend all my money, I'm going to go up on a mountaintop and just wait. Paul basically says, get back to work, live and do the things God calls you to do, promote the kingdom of God, don't be preoccupied with waiting. We work, we serve. We live. We glorify God in everything we do while we wait. And then the third preoccupation is preoccupation with this world. Trying to make paradise on earth, on our terms, before God brings paradise to earth in his time, on his terms. And I would say that seems to be the thinking behind the God wants you rich theology. It seems to tempt people to spend their heart, their resources, their time, their emotion on 
making paradise on this earth before God brings it down. God wants you rich? No, God wants you to make other people rich by bringing heaven's treasure, Jesus, to bear on their lives as it is on yours. So Peter's going to tell us then in his second epistle, chapter 3, that true waiting always produces a quality of living that reflects heaven's glory. You know you're waiting truly when you've set aside date setting, when you've dismissed the idea that all you're supposed to do as you wait is make yourself rich. No, you know you're truly waiting when the way you live reflects heaven's true glory, Jesus. Here's what Peter writes, first, uh, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment day. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's spiritual conditioning. That's your spiritual wind sprints at the end of practice. You're conditioning for an eternity of victory, an eternity of rest, an eternity of unspoiled enjoyment of God himself. That's why we're all the diligent, all the more diligent to be found by him spotless in holiness, clothed in the beauty of Christ by faith, having bowed, bowed the knees of our heart before his cross, received the forgiveness of our sins, bathed ourselves in his mercy, transformed by his ravishing love, waiting for that person to appear. What a great Reason, what a compelling answer to doing everything with all your being, with all your diligence and godliness and holiness, waiting for Him. Let's pray. You have called us, Lord Jesus, to wait for you, to wait with patience, and to wait hastening the day of your appearing with all godliness and holiness, and thereby showing this poor, broken, dark, blind world what you are like. What a privilege. What a pleasure. What a necessity in us this world sees. Something of the one who is coming to reveal his glory to the nations. So use us to that end. Use us as those intoxicated with your grace our hearts full of your mercy, our hearts in wonder at the accomplishment of your death and resurrection for us, the certainty of paradise. Use us with that confidence to make others know how much 
you love this world, what you did for it. We pray in his name. Amen.